as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. We'll be here till the end of June, and so turn with me if you have a copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. And as you do, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what our church staff does uh, during the week? Besides waking up early on Sunday morning and making decisions about snow closures, what do we do actually? Like, what are the job descriptions for people who work on staff at a church. Well, I found some humorous uh, ministry job descriptions that I wanted to share with you as we begin today, just kind of for fun, all right? So here's the first one. This one was for a lead pastor. Uh, here's what a lead pastor should be able to do. Here's the job description. A lead pastor is able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. He's more powerful than a locomotive. He's faster than a speeding bullet. He walks on water and makes policy with God. That's kind of a tall order. I'm not too sure I'm cut out for that job. Maybe Pastor Bob uh, could do a better job than I would there. Perhaps I should consider being an associate pastor. An associate pastor is, uh, is one who's able to leap short buildings in a single bound, as powerful as a switch engine, uh, just, just as fast as a speeding bullet, walks on water if the sea is calm, talks with God. So that, that sounds like a little bit more reasonable, maybe. But how about this one? Uh, this one's for you, John, if you're watching. Worship director. Uh, worship director leaps, uh, well, he, he leaps short buildings with a running start. Uh, he's almost as powerful as the switch en engine, faster than a speeding BB, uh, walks on water if he knows where the stumps are, and is occasionally addressed by God. Sorry, John, that was kind of cold. Uh, I love John. He knows I'm kidding around with him, but rest assured, it's not quite as insulting as this next one. Okay, so youth director. Uh, youth director runs into small buildings, uh, recognizes locomotives two out of three times, uses a squirt gun, knows how to use the water fountain, mumbles to himself. So Johnny's going to have to pay me back big time for that one, I know. I know. But, uh, of course, Johnny knows I'm kidding. He's a fantastic staff member. We all love Johnny. We're just kind of joking around here. But there is one final job description that I did find for the church office manager. Uh, the church office manager lifts buildings to walk under them, uh, kicks locomotives off the track, catches speeding bullets in her teeth, freezes water with a single glance, and when God speaks, she says, may I ask who's calling? So... Now, that's not that far off from what our office manager, Christy Gall, does every week. Raise your hand, Christy. We appreciate you. I'm kind of kidding, obviously, just starting with something funny. But I wanted to begin today with a rather unusual question, and it's this. If Jesus had a job description, what would it say? Like, is there a job description for Jesus? The answer to that question is surprisingly yes. And so today we want to ask and answer that exact question. What did Jesus come to do? In other words, what was Jesus' job description? What was his mission? What was his purpose uh, in terms of his earthly ministry? What did he spend his time doing? What was on his primary agenda? Uh, you may not realize this, but the answer to that question is found in our passage today, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 44. Here in this passage, I want you to notice both what Jesus said and what Jesus did, and together these will show us who Jesus is and exactly what he came to do. And so the title of my message is simply that, what did Jesus come to do? And we'll see today that he came to do at least three things. Jesus came to preach the good news, Jesus came to liberate the oppressed, and Jesus came to heal the hurting. What we have here in chapter 4 is Jesus beginning his public ministry. We also have a record here of Jesus' first sermon ever. 
And so I'm going to focus most of my attention in the message today on the beginning of this portion of Scripture, and I will encourage you to study the rest of it in depth on your own as it expands on the themes that we find here in the beginning. So that's where we're headed today, and before we go into God's Word, let's take a moment and pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving this text. We ask that you teach us today. Uh, Lord, we celebrate with you alongside of our brothers and sisters in Christ who've professed their faith in baptism. And now as we seek to sit at your feet and learn from your word, we confess that we too need you in our lives. We need you to do your work in our midst and in our own individual spheres of influence. And so as we begin this new year, 2024, with you, we begin with your word. And so bless our time now in these scriptures. Make them come alive for us and help us to follow you more deeply as a result. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Now, just before I get started, a little review as we begin. Uh, the Gospel of Luke began in chapters 1 and 2 telling us about the births of John the Baptist and the births of Jesus. And then in chapter 3, Luke, the Gospel writer, fast forwards about 30 years uh, to the time where John the Baptist is now an, a grown-up. Uh, he's an adult. He's serving as a prophet. He's calling the people to repentance uh, to get ready for this new thing that, John, that Jesus is about to do uh, and that God is about to do. And, and John the Baptist is doing this by baptizing people in the Jordan River. And it's at that point that we're introduced for the first time ever to Jesus as an adult uh, who too comes down to the water to be baptized by John. And when Jesus is baptized, a voice comes down from heaven simply saying this, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now at that point, Jesus goes into the wilderness and uh, Ken Huber did a great job expounding on this for us last week and he's tempted by the devil and Jesus passes that test uh, with total victory. And that brings us to where we are in our text today. So drop down with me to Luke 4, verse 14. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So we see first here that Jesus taught in their synagogues on the Sabbath. The word for taught there is the Greek word didaskalo. It means to impart instruction, to instill doctrine, to explain or to expound. And this is something that Jesus did often. He began to develop a reputation for being a uh, wonderful teacher, a rabbi, a master teacher. And when he taught, many were amazed at his teaching. And so here he is in kind of the honeymoon phase of his ministry, if you will. And Jesus is riding this wave of popularity and power. Things could not have been going any better for Jesus at this point, which is why we're so surprised when in just a few short verses, the adoration of these crowds will give way to thoughts of murder. Yes, murder. Uh, continue with me with verse 16. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Notice it says it was his custom, meaning Jesus had a habit of regular attendance at weekly worship. So as a small point of application here, please allow me to state the obvious. Brothers and sisters, attending weekly worship is vitally important for your spiritual life. Think about it. If anybody didn't need to go to worship because things were fine between them and their Heavenly Father, it was Jesus. If anybody could complain about having to sit through below-average preaching, 
It was Jesus. How easy would it have been for Jesus to skip attendance at a local synagogue? But think of this. Even Jesus, yes, even Jesus felt that he needed to maintain a pattern of regular corporate worship. Then obviously, if that's the case with Jesus, how much more should that be a priority in our lives as well? See, throughout the New Testament, the church is absolutely central to a Christian's growth in faith and maturity. In his book, What is a Healthy Church?, Pastor Mark Dever says it this way, Never does the New Testament conceive of the Christian existing on a prolonged basis outside the fellowship of the church. Weekly worship is where we go to regularly hear the word of God preached. Weekly worship is where we go to benefit from the right distribution of the sacraments. Weekly worship is where we go to enjoy fellowship with the other saints. Weekly worship is where we go to find the benefit of accountability and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is where we go with opportunities to serve God and to give back to our generous God. Weekly worship attendance is the foundation for growing in the spiritual life. As it says in the book of Hebrews, let us not... Give up meeting together as it is the habit of some. So in the pattern of Jesus himself, let me encourage you to make weekly worship attendance your custom in 2024 as well. So Jesus is there at his local synagogue, and here's what happens next. It says this in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, in those days, on each Sabbath, there would be a scripture reading. Typically, there would be a reading from the law, and there would also be a reading from the prophets. And so on this occasion, we learn that Jesus is actually invited to not only give the scripture reading, but he's also going to be the guest teacher. In other words, Jesus is going to be the one to give the meditation or to give the exposition of the scriptures for that day. Can you even imagine being in the audience on this special day where Jesus himself is about to give his first ever message? And on this day, the prescribed reading, we're told, just, to, just so happened to be from the, the book of Isaiah, a book that was written 700 years earlier than this event. And out of all the possible portions of Isaiah, out of all of the possible scriptures, this one particular portion contained the mission of the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is about to read his own job description. Take a look at what it says next. It says, so he enrolled the, unrolled the scroll... And found the place where it was written. So picture the scene with me. Jesus finds the part of the Isaiah prophecy that he's supposed to read. The scrolls those days were not divided into chapters and verses like our Bibles are. In fact, they weren't even divided into separate words. Uh, ancient Hebrew had just capital letters, right, one right after the other, no vowel pointings, no punctuation whatsoever. And so to find the right place, this rabbi Jesus had to have had a, a, a familiarity. He had to already have had an intimate knowledge of these scriptures. And so Jesus finds the right place in the prophet Isaiah's scroll, and then he reads it. And here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes, and, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So picture this. He reads the passage, and then it says in our text, at that point, he sat down. 
And now, don't misunderstand what that means. When it says he sat down, that did not signal the end. He would have sat down on a stool, something like this, on a raised platform. And this was not the mark that the teaching was over. Like if myself or Pastor Bob sit down, the sermon is done. Or some of you really look forward to that moment every single week. Like, when is this guy going to sit down, right? That's not what it indicates here. When Jesus read the scroll, uh, he would do so by standing. It was their custom to stand while the scripture was being read. And then he would sit down when it was time for him to begin the teaching about what he had just read. And so as he sits down, just picture the scene. All of the eyes are on him. Every ear is bent toward what he is about to say. Everyone is looking at him. He's got the whole room enraptured with his attention. There's this sense of expectancy. And then what he says next is one of the most amazing statements in the entire Gospel of Luke. It's one of the most radical claims that Jesus ever makes. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. Do you realize what Jesus is claiming here? He's saying that he's the one that Isaiah wrote about 700 years earlier. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Do you realize people have been waiting for the fulfillment of this passage for hundreds and hundreds of years? The people of Israel have been waiting for the Lord's anointed. And right here, Jesus says, today, I'm here, right here, right now. You're waiting and you're expecting the Messiah while well, you're looking at him. You're listening to him. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's amazing. And let me just pause for a second and drop anchor right here and just ask you, what do you think about Jesus' claim? This issue is critically important. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and, and you're looking into this and we're glad that you're here. But what do you think of Jesus' claim? Consider this, in the list of people that are the most influential people in all of the world, maybe you'd make a top 10 list. Most people would say Jesus is on that list. Many people would put Jesus in the top five. Maybe you'd put him in the top three. For me, maybe you'd put him at number one. I think he's the number one. I think he's the most influential person that has ever walked the face of this earth. Now, some people, like myself, say he's number one, but here's the difference between Jesus and everybody else on that top 10 list. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the one that's coming to save the whole world. Now, if you're a thoughtful person, you realize this is something that you need to look into because of the magnitude of this claim. Now, I realize there's another list of people, a separate list of people in the world, who made some outlandish claims to be the Messiah as well. There's the David Koresh's of the world. There's the Sun Young Moons of the world. But you and I know that the people on that other list are largely dismissed. You and I know that the people on that other list have gone off the rails. You and I know that the people on that other list are a few bricks short of a building. Not Jesus. Jesus is the only one on both of these lists. So when it comes to Jesus, you need to wrestle with the magnitude of his claim. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Christianity, if false is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. 
have you seriously considered the magnitude of this claim? Let me put it this way. What if you're at home one day and you get a ring at your doorbell and there's a person on the other side of your door with a certified letter and they ask you to sign for this piece of certified mail and you open it up and you read the letter and you realize what the letter basically says is something like this. Hey, please come and see us. You're the long lost heir of a fortune from a wealthy European family. You say, wow, come on, this can't be. But you're not even going to look into that a little bit? Sure you are. Why? Because of the magnitude of the claim. If you miss out on that, you've missed out on something big, something huge. This is what I'm saying about Jesus. You owe it to yourself to look into this. Why? Because of the magnitude of the claim. If you miss this, you've missed something huge. So you can't just dismiss him. My friend, Jesus will allow you to evaluate the evidence. He will even allow you to reject him. But one thing he will not allow you to do is sit on the fence. Everybody has to decide what they believe about Jesus, including you. So what say you? Who is Jesus? Now back to our text. So Jesus begins his public ministry by proclaiming to everyone there that he is that long-expected Messiah, which is amazing. Now let's look back at that prophecy from Isaiah and just look at some of those details a little closer. First of all, notice that it says here, uh, the Spirit of God was upon him with a special anointing. The, the word anointed there is the derivative of our word for Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And you'll notice in our study of the Gospel of Luke that the Holy Spirit will be a major emphasis in the Gospel of Luke. You'll recall in chapter 1, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You'll recall from earlier in chapter 3, Jesus was baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit when he faced the devil in temptation. And the Holy Spirit will re remain upon him throughout his entire public ministry. The subject of the Holy Spirit will continue to be a major theme in the Gospel of Luke, especially in his second volume that we call the book of Acts. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this power that the Spirit gives is also accessible to those who serve God by faith, but Jesus possessed this in a unique way, in its fullness. He says, the Spirit has anointed me to do some things, to do a few things. First of all, to proclaim or some translations that you have may say, to preach. Now, if you look down through the record of church history, you will find a list of excellent preachers with outstanding ministries throughout the last 2,000 years. Uh, for example, we remember ancient preachers in the early church like John Chrysostom, the man with the golden tongue. If you look at even in the history of America, we have been blessed by some wonderful preachers here. Men like Jonathan Edwards or John Wesley or George Whitfield. The man, they said, could bring you to tears simply by saying the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> Lots of wonderful preachers. These preachers were a vital part of the great awakening that occurred in our country, even right here in Basking Ridge. And we remember other great preachers like Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. In his 57 years, Spurgeon preached over 3,000 sermons. Every week, he would preach between four and ten times a week. He pastored the largest Protestant congregation in the world at that time uh, in London. One time, David Livingston, a missionary in Africa, asked Spurgeon, how can you accomplish so much in one day? And, Livingston said, and Spurgeon replied by saying, well, you forget, Mr. Livingston, there are two of us working. Of course, referring to the Holy Spirit's anointing upon his ministry. So 
So the point is, anointed preaching is a powerful means by which God, the Holy Spirit, has been at work because God has promised that his word will not return void and the preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and we've been blessed with some great preachers. But my friends, the most anointed preacher to have ever spoken on the face of this earth, the one who had the greatest unction, the one whose words were anointed with the power of the Spirit of God the most was obviously Jesus of Nazareth. There is no competition. The Puritans used to say God only had one son and he made him a preacher. And when Jesus preached, they were simply amazed at his words. So Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news. This is the word for the gospel, the euangelion. It means glad tidings or good news. Commentator Philip Ryken says, this is truly the good news according to Jesus in this passage. Heard from the lips of our Savior. And he says, this is good news for who? For the poor. The word for poor referred to those who were totally destitute of wealth, influence, position, or honor. It's a word that literally comes from the verb to crouch down as a beggar would crouch down. It's used to describe the poor man in Luke chapter 16 in the well-known story of the rich man and Lazarus. It refers to those in society who are powerless, those who are helpless, those who are needy, those with severe financial lack. You'll recall from the good news given, to the, given by the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 that that is precisely the group that Jesus has come to bring good news of great joy. Why? Dr. Daryl Bach says it this way, quote, It is the poor in general who sense their need in the greatest way and as a result, respond most directly and honestly to Jesus. They characterize concretely the person in need. Their material deprivation often translates into spiritual sensitivity, humility, and responsiveness to God's message of hope. The message is offered to them, and they tend to be the most responsive to it. This is why sometimes Jesus will say later, like in Luke chapter 18, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus came to do what? He came to preach the good news to the poor. Now, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 61, where he's quoting from, the next phrase in Isaiah's prophecy says that the Messiah would also come to heal the brokenhearted. Some copies of the Gospel of Luke contain this verse, some don't. We don't know if this phrase was original. It's not in our oldest copies of the Gospel of Luke. It is, however, in the passage that he quotes from in Isaiah 61. That might be the reason why a scribe added it back in later. We're not really sure. But whether it's here or not, we do know this was certainly part of the job description of the Messiah, to heal the brokenhearted. Friends, think of that. Do you know any doctor who can heal a broken heart? Is there any more painful condition than the condition of a broken heart? Friends, if your heart is broken today, remember that Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. I know this time of year after the holidays can be very hard for some people. The holidays can be a lonely experience. And if that's you, I want to encourage you that Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted. And if you're brokenhearted today, let me encourage you that we want to come alongside of you as well. In fact, we have a ministry here at Millington called Stephen Ministry, and we would love to walk with you through what you're going through. If you want to learn more about receiving that ministry or 
giving that ministry and being part of our next training, please come and talk to me or one of our other Stephen leaders. We would love to talk to you about that powerful ministry. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to heal the brokenhearted. The next phrase in our translation says this, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now the term captives here referred to those who were either A, prisoners of war, or B, those sold into slavery to pay their debts. In America, this kind of reminded me that there's this inscription on the Liberty Bell down in Philadelphia, which has a verse from Leviticus 25 on it, by the way, which says this, quote, proclaim liberty throughout all of the land unto all of the inhabitants thereof. Because our country has a long heritage of lifting up the virtue of liberty and freedom. But the term liberty back in our text, or freedom, is the Greek word aphesis, and it carries a more wide range of meaning. Uh, it means to release, to let go, to send away, to discharge, or to forgive someone of their obligation, their guilt, or their deserved penalties. And so what Jesus is actually speaking out about here is the most liberating, the most emancipating release of all. He's talking about giving you freedom from your guilt through the forgiveness of your sin. Yes, Jesus will free people from their sicknesses and from slavery and from other things. But most of all, he will set us free from the penalty of our sin, from what truly enslaves us, from what truly holds us back. But to receive this liberation, friends, there's a catch. We must first admit that we are enslaved, uh, that we are enslaved to sin, that we are in bondage to sin, that we are slaves to the power of evil in our own hearts, that we are held captive by evil passions and foolish pleasures and sinful lusts and selfish ambitions. Jesus said elsewhere, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So can I ask you a question, friends? What about you? Do you realize that you're held captive by sin? What sins in your life are keeping you captive? What guilt is enslaving you in your soul? Whatever it is, I urge you to listen to this good news of this Messiah, Jesus. He has come to set you free. And he'll say elsewhere, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so how will he do this? Well, the great hymn writer Charles Wesley says it well. Quote, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. The manner in which Jesus will set you free is through his blood, by dying on the cross as the sin bearer in our place for our sins. This is the good news. So what did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to set his people free. Amen? That's a good place for an amen. Don't be shy about uh, responding today, all right? Next, notice it says Jesus will also give recovery of sight to the blind. Now, some people ask, uh, does this part of his job description refer to physical blindness only, or does it also refer to a spiritual kind of blindness? And the answer, I think, is both. Of course, we know physical healing was a big part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, we will see later that Jesus restores the sight of a blind man in Luke chapter 18. That's a sign of his kingdom that he's bringing, the announcement of the kingdom. Age has come, the kingdom that has already begun, though it is not yet in its fullness, but it certainly begins with the ministry of Jesus. And so for this reason, physical healing became a big part of his earthly ministry. We will see later in chapter 4, there's a few scenes where Jesus begins to live out this job description of providing physical healing. One example is from Peter's own mother-in-law in Capernaum. 
And drop down with me to verse 38 for a moment and take a look at that story. It says this, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Notice Dr. Luke, Luke the gospel writer, who's a physician, takes care to mention to us this important detail that it was not just any fever, it was a high fever. In those days, that was a technical term to refer to the kind of fever that would lead to death. But Jesus, in his response to this sickness, notice, rebukes the fever. Now, that's a word that's not usually associated with a bacterial infection. You rebuke your enemy. You rebuke a small, unruly child. You rebuke a demon, perhaps, but rebuke a fever. This is the power of Christ, the Lord of all creation, even over bacteria. He rebukes a fever, and she's healed, which is amazing. Here he's showing his authority over all disease and all sickness, proving that he is who he claims to be, the one who is the great physician, the one who came to heal. And this includes giving sight to the blind. Back to our text, there is a greater blindness, though, that is infinitely more devastating than physical blindness, and it is this blindness that Jesus came to address. Friends, the Bible says that we're all born spiritually blind. We are blind to the Scriptures. We are blind to our own sin. We do not see our own need for forgiveness. We do not see our guilt and our culpability before a holy God. We do not see any of these things until Jesus, the great physician, comes to cure our spiritual blindness and allow us to miraculously see. So may I ask you a question? Can you see your own sin? Can you see your own need for this Messiah, this Savior? Or are you still groping around in the darkness, wondering where the light might be? The encouragement from our text today is to cry out to the one who can give you the light, who can open blind eyes, and say alongside of the hymn writer John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to give sight to the blind. Next. Notice it also says that he came to give liberty to those who are oppressed. Uh, now, this would include those who are oppressed and crushed in spirit, those who are shattered by the hard experiences of life. Uh, this would also include victims of cruelty, uh, victims of verbal abuse or emotional abuse or physical abuse. But this also would especially include those who were dominated by the forces of evil in this world. And we're going to see an example of this later on in chapter 4. Drop down with me, if you will, to verse 31 as it describes this scene as Jesus living out this job description. Look at what it says. 31, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. You see, friends, despite what our scientific modern age tries to teach us, the word of God declares that Satan and evil very much exist. But the word of God also teaches us that Jesus, the Messiah, faces down evil as if they were nothing. This evil is utterly powerless in the presence of this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the key question in the book of Luke is who is Jesus? And there are many different answers to that question as people are trying to figure it out. But there is one group of people in the gospel of Luke that are crystal clear about who Jesus is. It's the demons. They know exactly who this holy one of God is. And so Luke is here pointing out that Jesus is the one delivering those who are oppressed and setting the captives free. And so what did Jesus come to do? He came to liberate those who were oppressed. And finally, notice in the passage that Jesus quotes from Isaiah that he also came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was a technical phrase that referred to a season in the Israelite Jewish calendar called the year of Jubilee. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 25. And this year of Jubilee occurred once every 50 years. It was a time in the nation of Israel when all the debts were canceled, when all debtors were released of their financial obligations, when all indentured servants were set free from their servitude and given amnesty. And this was also a year of restoration when all property was returned to their rightful owners. This was a cyclical experience in the life of Israel every 50 years. But this special year of Jubilee was also a foreshadow of the work of the Messiah who would come one day and cancel all of the debts permanently. In other words, what Isaiah prophesied was that one day the Messiah, the anointed one, would come to bring the year of Jubilee to end all Jubilees. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was Israel's greatest hope. As Charles Wesley wrote in his great hymn, they would pray, Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. This is what Jesus came to do, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to preach the good news to the poor. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set the captives free. He came to give sight to the blind. He came to give liberty to the oppressed, and he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, he came to address the deepest forms of human distress. 
with his grace and his mercy. Now, what was their response? For some, at least initially, it was a very positive response. But then there was also some opposition. Take a look at verse 22. It says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So many received Jesus as the promised Messiah and the blessing that he was and is. With open arms, they embraced him. But not everyone felt the same way. There were other reactions to him as well. And regarding some of those others, the text simply says this, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now let me briefly explain what's implied in that short sentence. <coughs> Implication number one. This was his hometown, and there was some skepticism about who he was, because as the saying goes, familiarity brings, breeds contempt. And they say, wait a minute, this is little Jesus. We watched him grow up. We watched him all our lives. Who does he think he is, the long-expected Messiah? No, surely that can't be. Implication number two, uh, what's implied here is a doubtfulness about the virgin birth narrative that we read about in chapters one and two. They don't really believe that Joseph was not really the biological father. They don't really believe in that miraculous birth. They don't really believe or have faith to trust that he is who he said he was. But third, what they're also saying, and don't miss this, is this, hey, we're, we're your hometown. Like, if this is who you really are, why is it that you're traveling all around Galilee doing these miracles and casting out demons and all that other stuff, but you're not doing that ministry right here for us? Like, we should take the priority. We're your people. We should be the ones that you're ministering to first and the most. And so they're upset. And in the next few verses, I'll just kind of summarize, Jesus responds to their questioning by giving them two examples of two Old Testament prophets who perform their ministry also outside of their hometowns, even outside of the circle of Israel altogether. One was from the ministry of Elijah, and one was from the ministry of Elisha. And in using those two examples, he's making, Jesus is making the point that sometimes those on the outside are more open and interested in what God is doing than those on the inside. And those on the inside end up missing out. This was certainly the case with both Elijah and Elisha, yet nobody ever questioned that their prophetic ministries were legitimate. So therefore, Jesus says, by implication, my ministry should not be questioned as legitimate either. Well, how do they respond to Jesus' response? Well, as you might guess, they are very offended. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogues were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's quite a change of heart. First, they're impressed and astonished. Now they're a flash mob that wants to kill him. But then the text tells us that Jesus sort of miraculously passes through their midst and slips away. But what I want you to notice here is that Jesus, the person of Jesus, always invokes a reaction. The person of Jesus always invokes a response. Jesus is a fork in the road for all of us. 
Everybody has to decide what they're going to do with Jesus and his claims, which was true back then. But brothers and sisters, it is true for you and me today too. What do you say about the person of Jesus? Is he the Messiah, the Holy One of God, like the demons confess? Is he the Son of God? Or is he, as those in Nazareth said, just the son of Joseph? That's a really good question. And that question, everybody in this room has to wrestle with. You'll read the rest of chapter 4 this week and you'll see a variety of responses to him. Some will embrace him. Others will reject him. Some will honor him as Lord. Others will dishonor him by putting him in just a category of just another ordinary person. And so that brings me to you. As we wrap up today, let me just ask you again, what will your response be to the person of Jesus? If there was a job description of the Messiah... It would say something like this. The Messiah must be able to proclaim the good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. He must be able to heal the brokenhearted and give sight to the blind and give liberty to the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Messiah came to do. And this is what the Messiah actually did. Let me put it this way. If your life was somehow a company and you had to hire somebody, like a CEO, to run the company of your life, would you allow Jesus to run the company of your life? Would you allow him to preach the good news to you? Would you allow him to heal your broken heart? Would you allow him to set you free? Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to do that, and it will make all of the difference in the world. Let me invite the worship team to come for one final song, and as they do, let me just also issue a warning. Let me warn you that time is limited as you consider to make that decision about what you're going to do about Jesus in your life. Today in our text, Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 61, but if you know your Bible, you may know that the very next verse in Isaiah 61 continues to say that the Messiah would also bring about judgment. The very next verse says that the Messiah would also one day bring about the day of vengeance of our God. But you'll notice that Jesus intentionally stops short of that part of the text. And the reason is that is not what he came to do on his first coming. Instead, at his first coming, he came to offer us hope. At his first coming, he came to offer us grace. At his first coming, he came to offer us this salvation. But one day, friends, when the Messiah returns and comes again, at his second coming, that will be a time of ultimate justice for those who reject this offer of salvation. Because one day he'll return to right every wrong. And everything crooked, he will make it straight. But today is the day of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. My friends, the encouragement from our text today is allow Jesus to take over as the CEO of your life. Allow him to fulfill his job description inside of you. Allow him to be who he says he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but also your personal Lord and Savior. Can we pray together? 
And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for the Spirit of God that does this great, wonderful work of salvation inside of our hearts. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and what he came to do. Uh, we thank you that he has come to set the captives free, knowing that we ourselves are those captives that have been set free. Thank you that he's healed our broken heart, binding up our wounds. Thank you for this year of the Lord's favor. Uh, we ask God that you would allow Jesus to be the CEO of our lives, to take full control. And this, this year might be the year when he takes even more control of all we are and all we do. For we ask it for Christ's sake and for his reputation. And all God's people said, 